fides quarens intellectum. I either just cast a fireball or that's Latin for faith-seeking understanding, which is the self-stated philosophical goal of this fellow we'll talk about called Anselm, who had a pretty storied career, to put it mildly. He was born in 1033 in a place called Aosta, which is now in Italy, and like Augustine and others, not a huge amount is known about his early life other than he had massive wanderlust and traveled widely. And he entered eventually into a school attached to the Benedictine Abbey at Beck in Normandy in 1060. So I guess the age of 27. Now, Beck was a very sort of powerful and influential center of theology, center of philosophy, a, a big center of learning at the time. And he quickly displayed his talents as a theologian, as a debater, and, you know, the not inconsiderable people, leadership and politics skill to be able to rise quickly in the ranks. So he became the prior of this abbey in 1063 and the abbot in 1078. And he led the monastery to even further and greater uh, center of intellectual excellence, reputations, and so on. And he wrote the Monologion, he wrote the Proslogion in 1076 and 1078, and he wrote four philosophical dialogues as well. In 1093, he moved to England, and William Rufus, who was a fairly tyrannical guy who succeeded William the Conqueror, uh, William the Conqueror, of course, uh, invaded in 1066 uh, England, and uh, this is why I have a French name, as my ancestors came across with William the Conqueror, and uh, ended up being awarded lands in Ireland, I'm sure due to benevolence and kindness and thoughtfulness, as is usually the case in these situations. And so he was appointed, uh, Anselm was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury by William Rufus. And he held this position until uh, his death in 1109. He was canonized, uh, turned into a saint in 1494. And Archbishop of Canterbury, Canterbury is basically the leader of the Church of England, a really challenging time. William Rufus was on the, the King Rules side of the endless battle between the clergy and the aristocracy. So the aristocracy often will say, what we say is the final law of the land. The clergy, of course, say, listen, you guys only have power because of the divine right of kings, which is sanctified by us. And therefore, since your edicts only have authority due to our pronouncements of your divinely inspired and divinely sanctioned rule, uh, we, the priests, should have the final say, the final power. So this went back and forth quite a bit. William Rufus was very much on the royal authority over religious sanction, and uh, so when Anselm visited Rome without getting the royal permission from the king, he was uh, exiled, and he ended up actually later exiled a second time by Henry the First. So yeah, a really, a really challenging life, and one of his goals was to provide Socratic style, syllogistical style, philosophical style proofs for what were generally considered to be matters of faith. Now, the belief in God is something that anybody interested in the human condition, anybody interested in philosophy, has to really work with. It's one of the most foundational questions in the realm of philosophy. The question, first and foremost, isn't whether God exists, in my mind. It's to understand and explain the extraordinary widespread acceptance of the idea of God. 
And there are many reasons why people claim to believe in God or, or do believe in God, I would assume. It could be that they've had visions of their own. It could be that they've had knowledge that they would perceive to be unattainable to them through regular secular empirical means. Uh, they could have had a, a, a miracle, uh, experienced a miracle or witnessed a miracle, something beyond the possibilities or against the possibilities or the realities of physics and so on. So there are lots of reasons. And of course, people look at the world and they see its balance, right? So they, they see the cycle of rain. Uh, they see the animals that human beings can consume and domesticate. Uh, they see the temperature that is in the range that human beings can operate in. And there was this best of all possible worlds, everything designed by a loving and benevolent God to serve human beings is a very common thought and very common belief. Now, of course, the answer from biology is, well, yeah, it seems like the world fits human beings because human beings have evolved in the world. And if human beings didn't fit the world, they wouldn't have uh, survived. If we had evolved to, to be silicon-based or breathe nitrogen or something, we wouldn't have done as well. And so the fact that we have this seemingly impossible series of stepping stones from non-existence to the dominant species of the planet, it may look like everything's designed for us, but that's just in hindsight. Because we were so well adapted to the world, it looks like the world has been designed uh, for us. So there are lots of reasons why uh, people... Of course, also there is the belief, and I, I completely understand this belief, or desire, which is the desire for immortality and the desire, if, if you love people and you care for people, that you will have a longer-term relationship than mere mortal flesh can provide. There is, of course, also a desperate desire, which is very rarely achieved in this world, a very desperate desire to see good people rewarded and bad people punished. It's a very, very important phenomenon that occurs in the world, to see good people rewarded and bad people punished. This rarely happens in the world as it stands. You can just look around contemporary political landscape, no matter when you're listening to this, unless it's in my novel, The Future, in the future. But you can look around and you can see that evildoers and, and liars and sophists and violent people, uh, particularly those high up in the political hierarchy, do enormously well and seem to be quite happy with their lot. And the people who fight against unjust power are vanished, they are erased, they're lied about, they're slandered, they're driven out of society, they're exiled, and they lose, it seems, on a fairly continual basis. And the root of their loss tends to be that human beings are driven by fear. We are driven by uh, anxiety and, and fear. Uh, fear is the most powerful motivator in the world for obvious evolutionary reasons. And so those who lack empathy are more than willing to inflict fear on their opponents. And those who have empathy, they do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, I wouldn't like other people to inflict endless fear on me, so I'm not going to do it on them. So we just have a system where the least compassionate, the most cruel, the least empathetic, the most aggressive have little to no problem inflicting fear on others and people just fall in line before that. Violence, the threat of violence, works really well. If it didn't, we wouldn't have evolved to use it so effectively as we tend to do, particularly, again, in the realm of, of politics and so on. And so the desperation that moralists feel in wishing to convince human beings to be better, to use sweet peace and reason in their negotiations rather than uh, deception, camouflage, and overt or covert violence to achieve their wills and goals, 
to reason with each other rather than to force each other, well, there are very few people who seem to listen to that in any kind of consistent way. You, of course, are one of those lovely people for which I enormously thank you for making my job worthwhile. But there is a a, a sad, and, and I understand this very viscerally, like it's just an awful desperation when you see evil flourishing and dominating and gaining strength after strength after strength and good people failing and faltering and crumbling away. And it's really a difficult situation. So the moralist, of course, in his desperation, is also drawn to believe that there is a supernatural moral force or a supersensual moral force, a moral force that exists outside of time and the mere machinations of petty matter that will apply a justice to the evildoers that the moralist is unable to achieve or attain in the world that is, in the world of of life. So there are lots of reasons why. Of course, also, when we are young, we view our parents as a kind of God, and that's hard to uh, let go of. And there are some people who do seem enormously larger than life, and it's hard to imagine that they're human beings are just like us. Because there is such a wide bell curve in terms of intelligence, in terms of creativity, uh, in terms of various abilities and skills. I mean, if you look at just about every field where there's a strong meritocracy, right, the vast majority of resources goes to a tiny minority of people, you know, 98 too, right? 98% of the money goes to 2% of people. And, you know, this varies to some degree, but it's just a fact. And, and the more meritocracy there is, the more that these abilities tend to get concentrated. So we see these virtually living man-gods or goddesses of productivity and talent and ability, you know, whether it's in sports or music or uh, debating or, or philosophy perhaps, but we see the vast majority of people flailing and failing, and we see a tiny minority of people who just dominate the entire landscape. It's not hard to go from there to the extrapolation that a gods exist because it's hard to, you know, when I, when I think about, you know, really amazing performers, in, in music in particular. Music is fairly incomprehensible to me. I get it. I enjoy it enormously. But, you know, I did 10 years of violin, and I don't think I got particularly good. I, I tried a couple of months of guitar and uh, piano and so on. And to be honest, I just, I don't get it. You know, when I, I occasionally will turn on YouTube, and, and I'm sure you have things where you see people explaining it, and it's like, why don't you switch to English? You know, where people are saying, well, you know, this F-sharp uh, goes down to a, a C-flat, and, and, you know, they're just dancing all over the place, and their fingers are whipping all over the frets uh, of the guitar and so on. And, I mean, honestly, don't, I don't get it. I have very little skill that way. And I can read music, and I can play a little bit here and there, but I just don't have that instinct, that ability. You know, it's said of Freddie Mercury, the, the singer and pianist and occasional guitarist for Queen, that, you know, he could hear a song and just play it back. He just had that kind of talent. The um, the keyboardist for the Alan Parsons project uh, just taught himself piano. And I've known some people who do that, just keep pounding away on the piano and just kind of teach themselves and understand it and, and just play it really well. And I've just never really... Be- I remember when I was, um, uh, I was uh, doing a bit of a stage show for a heavy metal band when I was a teenager. A friend of mine was a singer in the heavy metal band and they needed... They had a song called uh, Fairies in Boots and I had to jump on stage and tear all over the place in giant boots uh, as part of this uh, song and uh, attack the guitarist. And, you know, it was it was a lot of fun to do it. I went to some pretty wild um, uh, backstage after parties for this band. 
And I just remember uh, being in there rehearsing and, and watching the guitarist and just doing, just, just doing wild stuff. And I was like, I'm never going to be able to do that. Like, you just know. Like, I could thrash around in it for a while. I could get to a mediocre level, but I just didn't have the instinct for it. And when you see people who can just do this kind of stuff, like you, you watch Prince uh, when they did that tribute to George Harrison, While My Guitar Gently Weeps with Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne, and George Harrison's kid. And you see Prince play that guitar, and it's just like, that is that's godlike to me, right? And this Eric Clapton is God, you know, the, this idea that there's some talent and ability and execution that is so outlandish. I mean, you look at Stevie Wonder and, and that he played at a master level in just about every conceivable instrument that he could lay his hands on. Or I remember seeing a Harry Connick Jr. concert uh, 20 plus years ago and Harry Connick Jr., obviously a fantastic pianist of ragtime and New Orleans style, but he played every instrument. He would run around, play every instrument. Uh, this was the case uh, Paul McCartney can play just about everything. And uh, people forget, of course, uh, that uh, Elvis was a great, a fairly good guitarist uh, or that Michael Jackson was a very good drummer and so on, right? So people, they just you can see it. They just have music in their blood. They have music in their veins. And when I look at my sort of halting bleh, kind of inability to to go with the flow with music, I remember spending a month trying to learn uh, all Dead, All Dead by Queen on the guitar. And I was okay at it, but it was like, this hurts my fingers. And I really am just following instructions. And I don't really grok this at any kind of deep level. And so I just didn't, in particular, pursue it much. And again, I'm not trying to talk about myself. I'm sort of trying to say that when you look at uh, people who just have this kind of confidence, this kind of astonishing ability. And of course, you know, they can be completely messed up in their personal lives and, and just be complete hellacious monsters and dysfunctional messes and drug addicts and so on. But when they're on stage, they're these golden gods of communication and, and clarity and depth and perception. I mean, watch watch Paul Schofield, who originally played Hamlet, be Hamlet's father in, I think it was Zeffirelli who did the Mel Gibson Hamlet. He, he's got like no time on the screen but the way he just waves when he's talking about the horrors of hell, the way he just waves and how much he communicates in virtually nothing. Or you watch Anthony Hopkins in, Sh in Shadowlands bursting into tears about the sorrow of losing his wife. And you're just like, oh, my God, these people are incredible. This is just astonishing, amazing, powerful, deep, wonderful stuff. And it's such a rare skill, such a rare ability, such a rare talent. And it's not just oh, so great actors and so on. Like, movies are shot out of sequence, and of course some plays go out of sequence. Harold Pinter famously has a play that goes in complete reverse. And if you look at the lightning strike skill set of a character arc out of sequence that the actor gets perfectly, you know, like an actor gets, let's say, Bruce Willis, who gives better being beaten up than anybody else in the business. You know, when you look at his movies where he gets beaten up continually more and more over the movie, the movie's shot out of sequence. But he has to get how tired he is, how broken up he is, how beat, how much he's limping on which foot and how much the limp is. He has to get that down perfectly in order for the film to make sense because you'll notice it unconsciously if you don't. So that level of detail, that level of planning, that level of ability is just astounding. And, you know, one of the most famous movie roles is, is um, Don Corleone in The Godfather played by Marlon Brando. And nobody wanted to work with Brando because he was a mess. And he was a mess, of course, a huge mess. But when they sent someone over to his, I think he was living on his island at that point, they sent someone over with a camera to do some test footage. And he glanced at the script a couple of times and he said, oh, he's one of these kind of guys. And he put the cotton in his mouth and he, he just gestured and talked like that guy, like it just came to life like that. And 
when his big breakout role was uh, Stanley Kowalski in Tennessee Williams' Streetcar Named Desire, and they couldn't find the right actor for it. And Tennessee Williams had this guy come over to his apartment, and Marlon Brando, who was a young unknown at that time, he think it took him a little, little of Stella Adler's uh, acting training, where <laughs> Stella Adler said, I want you all to pretend to be chickens and you hear a bomb coming and everyone ran around pretending to cluck and so on and Marlon Brando squatted down and pretended to lay an egg and she went that's exactly what a chicken would do as if she knew but anyway so Marlon Brando would come over or came over to audition for Stanley Kowalski and noticed that Tennessee Williams uh, plumbing wasn't working so he fixed the plumbing and then he just sat down read the part and the cold read the part and Tennessee Williams was like, yeah, that's Stanley Kowalski. Boom, right there. Done and dusted, right? The gaudy seed bearer, as he was called. And if you ever get a chance, you should watch the um, Ilya Kazan-directed Stanley Kowalski and Vivian Lee and Carl Malden in Streetcar Named Desire. It's uh, astonishing. Astonishing also how much the human body can change from youth to, to middle and old age. So you, see, you just see that level of ability. Or you can listen to Freddie Mercury doing the Prophet song live, which has a sort of around in the middle and he just sings along to himself on a loopback and it harmonizes perfectly and it's different every time or the intros to somebody to love different every time always perfectly musical never hits a bum note almost never anyway except when his voice was tired which happened quite a bit so you you look at these levels of ability that are so vastly different from your own and i mean people were somebody was saying the other day when i did my speech um i did a speech on is tolerance of virtue and people were like i could sit for 20 years and never write a speech that good and you just pulled it out of your butt so to speak and just did it live with no preparation i didn't know that question was coming and so even when you have that level of ability yourself and yes of course it's trained i've been doing it for a long time but there's a reason i trained in that and not in guitar because that comes easy so that's what i work on and that's what i work to enhance and work to get better at and i've always told you guys i've always promised you guys i will never rest on my laurels i will always work to try and improve what it is that i'm doing and i will always assume i can do a hundred times better than what i'm doing so uh, for those of you who are enjoying this uh, great philosophers or history of philosophers series uh, I, I appreciate that because i'm trying to outdo myself and i'm really trying to give a sense of why people believe what well, in in omnipotence, why people believe in omniscience, why people believe in this uh, staggering amalgam of positive characteristics called God. Because we all know people, either directly or indirectly, that we could never possibly compete with. That we could never possibly compete with. You know, I was watching Burn Notice the other day, and uh, Jeffrey Donovan plays the main character, and he's fantastic. And I was thinking, like, how that would be if I were in that role. <laughs> and it's like, okay, it just would not be anywhere close to the same. He's got this very lithe, lizard-like characteristic and this muffled morality and uh, primitive loyalty combined with unbelievably sociopathic skill sets and all that. It's just amazing stuff. Like, I couldn't pull that off in a million years. I mean, there's a couple of things I can act well, and I, I think I do a good job on my audiobooks. But that level of ability and that level of talent and that level of, of comfort or Fiona's ability to, like, not eat and do sit-ups uh, for days, don't have it. Don't have it. And so when you look at the people in your life, and you can watch Live Aid or whatever, right? And you say, wow, that is some amazing stuff. And so for me, I look around the world and there are people who, whose abilities so vastly outstrip myself that they feel like a different species. Like there's a tipping point of excellence where doesn't it feel otherworldly? Doesn't it feel otherworldly? Divinely inspired. And also when I get 
it just from an introspection standpoint, when I get a really great question, which is why I'm constantly chasing you guys down for really great questions, when I get a really great, great question, the answers are summoned within me, the answers flow within me, and I'm learning as I'm speaking. I don't have, I haven't got all of these big thought out things regards to is tolerance a virtue. It's not like I've got that speech mapped out in my brain. I have some thoughts about it, but they're usually in passing. But the questions, like a spear in my side, to take a Christ-like analogy, like a spear in my side, cause the gush of truth to come out. And it doesn't come out in the other way. Sometimes it does if I'm working with these kinds of questions, like why do people believe in God? But I'm sure you know people who just possess such wild abilities that they so dwarf your own that they appear halfway to divinity. And then you say, well, how could that be? How could that be? Well, one answer, of course, and the religious answer, in particular the Christian answer, which is the one I'm most familiar with, is they say, touched by God, gifts given by God. God has given a great ability to this person. And that's a wild thing. I mean, if you look at cheetahs, imagine that you're a cheetah who can trot along fairly okay, nothing super speedy, but you can trot along fairly okay. And then there's another cheetah that can go faster than the speed of sound or close to light speed or something like that. That's the level of differentiation among human beings. Now, of course, we're all human. We all have the same rights and I give all the same properties from a moral standpoint. I get all of that. But just in terms of abilities, the outliers are so far outside the norm that it's almost, for me, it's almost impossible to comprehend how people can just sit down and learn just about every instrument with relative ease. Not to mention, like, if you're Stevie Wonder, you're blind, and, of course, you're, you're writing great songs, you're a great performer, and, and so on, right? It's, it's amazing. It, 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 it seems godlike to me. It seems divine to me, and it's hard to explain from the mere meat of material muscle in the mind, to be a little alliterative, to, to, to explain how any of this can happen. So there is, it seems like certain human talents and abilities are a portal to divinity. They are a portal to the forms, to perfection. And this has, I think, been a fairly common observation, but I really wanted to concentrate it here to talk about another reason why people believe that God exists, because how can you explain the diversity of human talents and the staggering abilities that some people have relative uh, to others? How can you explain this without reference or without temptation to reference the divine? And so if, like, if somebody is an infinitely better musician than I could ever be, and I genuinely believe that's, you know, more or less the case, right? Somebody's an infinitely better musician than I could ever be. Then thinking of something infinitely better, infinitely wiser, infinitely smarter, infinitely more moral is not impossible to imagine. And the more that we've been around more skilled people, and of course the internet gives us even more access and exposure to even more skilled people, it just becomes stronger and stronger. So for me extraordinary talent is about as close to a miracle as you can possibly get. How can three pounds of wetware produce Bohemian Rhapsody or uh, Leeds Piano or uh, Pachelbel's Canon or Bach's can- Cantatas? I mean, how, how can these things be produced by the same three pounds that everybody's carrying around with? It does seem to be that there's a ghostly finger that's touched from the divine to spark beauty and complexity in the human mind. And, of course, even the uh, uh, even the artists themselves, as Socrates pointed out, 
when he was examining people. Even the artists themselves have very little idea how they do it. So I just wanted to uh, point out that that is, is the closest thing, I think, that most of us have come to direct experience of miracles is just seeing that level of... Uh, but I mean, you see this even at bars. You see this at bars. There's some people who just inhabit the music, they get the music, and every single thing that they do is TikTok-worthy or whatever, right? So, all right. So, the goal, of course, of Anselm was to try and figure out, can you prove the existence of God? Now, you can't get there empirically. You cannot get there empirically. That's really important to understand. You can get there if you accept historical accounts, right? So if you believe, as I'm sure very many Christians did in the early days of Christianity, if you believe that Jesus walked on water and uh, turned water into wine and did all of these wonderful and amazing things, if you genuinely believe that, then the portal to the proof for the existence of God is the existence of miracles. And, of course, Jesus nailed to a cross, uh, buried, come back to life three days later, well, that's not possible, right? It's not possible to bleed out from palm and foot wounds, die, come back to life three days later. That's evidence of divinity and and would be powerful evidence of divinity. But of course, if we're going to take hearsay, if we're going to take historical hearsay, then it's tough to limit it to one God, right? Because there are many gods, 10,000 or so that human beings believe in where there's lots of hearsay with regards to miracles and cures and so on, right? So, this is the problem, of course, that if you, you want a proof for your God. Now, if you, of course, say, well, all of the other miracles were false miracles, but the miracle of my God is the real miracle, then you solve that problem. But uh, I think a lot of people feel that that's kind of an unsteady base to put your, your faith on. So how do we get to the proof of God? Can't be empirical, because the empirical tests are specifically rejected by a God who hides himself from humanity. Right? God is not a performing animal to do tricks upon demand. Right? If there is a God, let this ping pong ball hover in midair. Well, God doesn't work that way. God may work in mysterious ways, but he doesn't work in uh, trained monkey obedient ways, obviously. right? So you can't do an empirical test and say, if there is a God, then I want uh, thunder and lightning to come out of a clear blue sky. If there is a God, then I want this bell to toll without any motion. If there is a God, then... Um, I want to uh, walk on air uh, over this canyon, right? This, of course, is not how God works, and even the most cynical person would not say that God is someone there who's just there to perform tricks to, to make sure you never have to believe uh, based on faith. So the empirical tests for God are not there. So Anselm says, look, the empirical tests we can't really work with, and so the only valid way that we can prove the existence of God is through the use of pure reason, a pure reason alone. And he was not totally opposed to experience, uh, empiricism, and so on. But he said, look, if we just re- reflect on the concept of God, then we can figure out that God does exist. So he found what he believed was the universally preferable behavior answer to the question of the existence of God. As I've worked on UPB as the proof for secular morality without gods for governments, he believed that through the use of pure reason, you could prove the existence of God. 
Okay, so how did he do it? This is called the ontological argument. Ontology simply refers to the nature of being and the existence of being. Okay, here's his tidal wave of reason. And I, you know, it's it's an argument just, just ahead of time. I don't want to color your experience of the argument, but it's easy for an argument to feel wrong, like, oh, that can't be right, but it's hard to prove it wrong sometimes. So even if it feels wrong, just recognize it's a powerful argument and needs to be uh, treated with some some significant respect. It's also been a very uh, influential argument that's been pushed back by a lot of people, from his contemporaries through Kant to other people. But And it is, in many ways, a kind of platonic argument. So, Okay, so what does he say? He says, look, God is a being. That's why, again, study of being, ontology. God is a being that is the greatest being that could possibly be conceived. Right, So if you can conceive of someone more powerful, if you can conceive of an entity more powerful, that entity has to be God. If you can conceive of an entity that is the most powerful, then that for sure has to be a God, right? And if you can think of something more powerful than the one you call God, then that's the God. So it is the greatest being that can be conceived of. So then he says, look, you can certainly conceive of all-powerful I mean, there's usually a holy trinity of these things, right? All-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. And whatever other characteristics that you want to put on there, but they have to be the greatest possible characteristics. Maximum, infinite, perfect characteristics, right? Okay. Now, he says, and this I'm paraphrasing here, right? But, but I think it's, it's valid. So he says, let's let's look at a perfect meal. Well, what is your perfect meal? Oh, it's X, Y, and Z food, right? Okay. Now, is the perfection of your meal increased if it's actually available to you, if it actually exists? So you can think of a perfect meal, think of two perfect meals identical, except one of them exists and one of them doesn't. Which one is more perfect? Well, clearly the one that exists is more perfect. It's better because you can actually eat it. Think of your perfect lover. Right, the witty and, and brilliant and funny and, and sexy and, and whatever, right? Okay, is the perfection of your ideal lover increased if that ideal lover actually exists? Well, well, sure, of course, because then you can actually date him or date her and marry and have kids and do all that wonderful stuff, right? So if you think of a perfect being, then that perfect being is only perfect if that being exists, in the same way that a perfect meal is only perfect if it actually exists and you can eat it, and a perfect lover is only perfect if he or she actually exists and you can date her. So, thinking of a perfect being, that perfect being must exist. It must exist. Because it is the most perfect thing that can be conceived of, and since existence is always an improvement upon non-existence, that which we conceive of as the most perfect being must contain within its panoply of characteristics the characteristic of actually existing. Otherwise, it could not be perfect. So, to look at it syllogistically, it goes something like this. Okay, God is the greatest possible being you can conceive of. You can conceive of that being. It is better or greater to exist in reality than it is merely to exist as a concept in your mind. Therefore, the greatest being that you can conceive of 
must possess the category of existence because otherwise it wouldn't be the greatest. It would simply be something in your imagination. Now, Anselm didn't call this the ontological argument, but it's being called the ontological argument, and this phrase was brought in by Immanuel uh, Kant. And we'll, we'll get to gold, uh, good old Immy in, in a little while. And a bunch of other people have taken a swing at this argument positively, like uh, ontological arguments similar to, or some of them are own. We've got Leibniz, which we'll get to, and we've got Descartes. Uh, Descartes is one of my big nemeses, so we'll get to that as well. And, But I think Anselm, at least as far as recorded history goes, is the guy who came up with it uh, first. And I think it's fair to say was the best way of, of putting it. Now, it was considered very compelling at the time. It has become less compelling as time goes forward. So, I think my, my when I first heard this argument, it's like, again, it feels wrong, but it's a little tough to pull apart the threads and figure out why it's wrong, if it indeed is wrong. If it's not wrong, then bingo, bango, bongo, you've got the existence of God, which is... Uh, well, it's a superior argument to UPB, because if you've got God, then you've got moral rules that are dictated by God, or at least the potential thereby. And so uh, it would be a superior thing to UPB. It would, re- it would render UPB somewhat less necessary to some degree. So, so it's, a, it's a really powerful argument to try and, and tackle. Okay, so let's whip over to Mamoutier's France to a monk named Guanilo. And he said, okay, okay, I see where you're going with this, but why should it be only God? Ah, you see, that's the tricky part. That's the tricky part. It's with moral arguments. Why is it only the things that we accept as good that the moral arguments would prove? Right? So for uh, the atheist arguments of and we'll, we'll get to this in, in the sort of more modern section, but the atheist arguments that morality is a form of evolutionary, adaptive, reciprocal altruism that aims to benefit blah, 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 like your tribe or, or humanity as a whole or whatever. And it's like, well, no, but that's not how evolution works. Evolution works because your, your genes reproduce, and in general, if you can reproduce at the expense of other genes, that's even better, right? So obviously um, the, the lion is going to, evolve at the expense of the genes of the zebra and the wolf at the expense of the genes of the the duck or the rabbit or whatever they're eating, right? But also, if, let's say, there's three males and one female, then the male who impregnates the female, she can't get pregnant with another man's litter while she's having yours. So you've now got your litter out of her or into her, I suppose, or inseminated her at the expense of the other males. So not only have you advanced your genetics, but you've pushed their genetics back and away from reproduction, at least for the for the time being. And uh, it's, you know, the male lion, if, if a male lion has a family with a female lion and male lion A gets killed or, or wounded or dies or something, then the female lion will cuddle up to a new male lion, but the new male lion will kill the cubs of the previous lion because he doesn't want to pour his energies into raising genes that aren't his own. So if you're going to talk about reciprocal altruism and Darwinianism as the driver, then things that we would consider to be 
emotionally, like at a very deep level, which is not a proof, but it's a pretty important thing to take into account, we would say, okay, well, a man obviously can't morally kill the children of a single mom who had kids by another man in order to impregnate her and has his like have his genes continue. That would be monstrous and abhorrent. It would be child murder, which is just about the worst thing, and so on, right? Uh, if you look at uh, ducks, of course, a very rapey species. Dolphins are also the same, uh, but it works for them in terms of spreading their genes. It may have inhibited their evolution a little bit, but it certainly works for them in terms of spreading their genes. And the ducks and or dolphins and or other rapey species who don't rape, and again, rape is a human term, so just forced sexuality, the, the ones who don't do that, their genes die out, right? So they must perform those aggressive sexual actions or their genes will die out. So... If you're going to say, well, you know, we, we, we help each other and we're kind to each other and we're nice to each other because of reciprocal altruism is advantageous to our survival. Okay, you would say to the atheists, the Dawkins and, and so on, you would say, okay, but also uh, cruelty, violence, rape, and child murder would also be advantageous to your genes. So if you just say, well, all the behaviors that we kind of like about being nice and generous and kind and supportive and loyal and so on, well, sure, and under certain circumstances, that can help your genes. But if we look across nature, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in nature that ain't that way at all. It's quite the opposite. And uh, you look at the child uh, offspring murder and, and rape and so on that occurs in nature and uh, you know violence uh, towards competing males in particular for the sake of access to females. Well, I mean, my heavens, you, you, those are also advantageous to genes. Otherwise, they would never have evolved. So the problem with, with the atheistic morality prior to UPB is that, yeah, absolutely, you can make a case that the nice things that we like that are seem kind and generous and, and positive and, and helpful, yes, you can make a case that those benefit the genes, but there are other behaviors that would be we would find instinctually morally repugnant or evil that also serve to benefit the genes. So you can't just say, well, only the, only the nice behaviors... <laughs> Uh, are the ones that are justified by genetic preference. All the not nice behaviors, we're just going to gloss over those or or pretend that it's not somehow in the interest of the genes when, of course, they've evolved for billions of years to do just that. So, yeah, how is it that it's only God that the ontological argument exists for? Right. So to get back to the monk called Guanilo in France, he said, okay, let's... um." Let's talk about the perfect island. Let's talk about the perfect island. So I could imagine a perfect island. And we all can. We've all fantasized about this when stressed at work, right? I can imagine a, a perfect island. It would be something like this. It would be, it would be, you know, beautiful, soft, sandy beaches, no seaweed. Dolphins playing in the surf, mojitos or whatever you like to drink, floating down by uh, ladies or gentlemen in... in bathing suits, uh, doing dances by the shore and beautiful music being played and fantastic food and conch shell sizzlers or whatever you happen to like. And then right jutting up above this beautiful oceanside paradise are also giant mountains with snow so that you could go, when you were tired of the beach, you could go up and ski the mountains and you could ski right down to the beach and then have another mojito. I could think of a perfect island, perfect temperature, perfect level of humidity and... Uh, non-fattening coconuts, <laughs> I don't know, whatever, right? So you could conceive of this perfect island. Now, if I can conceive of a perfect island, and you certainly can, and I can, it, and it would be different, but if I can conceive of a perfect island, an island that could not be improved on at all, 
then clearly the island is better if it exists than if it doesn't exist, right? If, if you're a huge fan of Middle Earth, you would rather it exists to some degree. At least you could go visit the peaceful parts of it, like the Shire before uh, Frodo left or whatever, or Bilbo even. So if you've got a perfect island, it's clearly better if the island exists and you can visit it. And therefore, it can only achieve perfection as an island if it actually exists. Or a lover, or your favorite meal, the best meal, the best meal also must exist. The best lover also must exist. The best island also must exist. So why would it be limited only to God? And since everyone, I mean, since everyone would have slightly different standards of what would be perfect, right? So uh, if you think of the perfect island, somebody who wants to sit in peace on the beach wants an island with few, if any, waves. Somebody who's a avid surfer, you know, Chris Helmsworth style, avid surfer. That guy's such an arse cliche, <laughs> but that's fine. It's just ab envy, don't mind me. But so what is the perfect island? Is it one with surf or without? You know, somebody who's allergic to the sun would want a cloudy island. Somebody who loves the sun would want a sunny island. You get all of this, right? So you'd have an infinity in a sense of perfect islands, all of which must exist, which strains reality to the to the infinite, right? So why would it just be God? Now, what he says is that, well, but God is a necessary being, and therefore this argument only applies to God. Ah, but you see, that's begging the question. Begging the question is when you assume to be true that which you are trying to prove. Right, so I say, okay, to prove that I'm right, first first accept that I'm right. It's like, no, 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 I can't accept that you're right, you have to prove it, right? So he said, well, well God is a necessary being, and so this argument only applies to God and not anything else. And it's like, but if you're creating a category called existence to prove that something exists, you can't say that which I'm trying to prove exists is the only thing that this can apply to. Because if you've already segregated it to being the only thing that this can apply to, you're already assuming that that thing exists. So, yeah, it, it, begs, it begs the question. Now, the other thing which you could say in response to this is, well, you know, you think you can conceive of a perfect island, but you can't really because you can't really get it in every level of detail and you might change your mind tomorrow and that perfection shouldn't be fluid. But that also begs the question, okay, well, can we actually conceive of a all-powerful, all-knowing infinite, eternal being, right? Can we actually do that? And Kant replied uh, to this later, and we'll, we'll get to this in, in more detail, but Kant replied and said, look, existence is not just a tack-on property that you can add to the conception of whatever it is you're thinking about, right? I mean, if you think of, uh, you imagine a unicorn it's not like, well, there's just one little property called existence that you have to tick off or check off and then this thing comes into existence because some things are purely imaginary, right? You can draw a very complex shape, but there's not something, a little tick box called it exists that you can just attach to that thing and turn it off and on like binary. So I don't think that that's uh, particularly uh, valid, right? So there's other arguments against it, 
But one thing that I would say, and this this may startle you a little bit, and I've I've mulled this over quite a bit, and I think it's a a reasonable approach to take. But obviously, I'm happy to hear what what you think as well. Okay, let me make this case. So I think it's really really important, and it's another to me nail in the coffin of Platonism, which has been my enemy low these forty years. So I got an emotional investment. It doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean I'm wrong. I'm just telling you up front. All right. You know that if you close your eyes, you can only aggregate seven to nine things in your mind. You can think of like think of one little ball of light, and you can make another little ball of light. Just your, your closed orange chaos of your eyeball eyelids closed, right? You can create maybe three rows of three, and then when you start to add ten, the first one begins to shimmer out, and like you can really try this. And we really can't conceive. Uh, in any visceral manner of anything. Like I'm looking right now at a dresser, right? And the dresser has uh, four, uh, it has two rows of four drawers, right? So there are eight drawers. Each drawer has two knobs on either side. So we've got 16 knobs, right? Now, can I look at and conceive and process all 16? No, because when I look at the bottom right one, the top left one becomes fuzzy. If I look at the bottom left one, the top right one becomes fuzzy. If I look at the middle, the ones on the outside become. I can kind of, to some degree, but not really, have all 16 of these knobs in my mind. Boy, it doesn't sound like an OnlyFans account. But anyway, that's the challenge. When you think, think of walking through the woods, right? So I've, I walk through the woods sometimes and do shows. I'll do call-in shows. I'll do um, videos and so on. So I'll walk through the woods, right? Now, when I'm walking through the woods, what am I doing? Well, I'm making sure I don't step because the, the paths are uneven. I'm making sure I don't step on anything wobbly and go plunging down. I'm holding the, the camera. I'm, you know, maybe got half an ear out for uh, thunder in case it's going to rain. And I'm looking at particular things, right? So if there's a tree up ahead, I'm not looking at that tree. For the most part, I'm looking down to make sure I don't stumble and I don't step into something wet to make squishy feet noises for the rest of the podcast or whatever. So I'm looking at a specific thing, and I'm not looking at all the other things. And everything you look at, I know we got peripheral vision, but it's called peripheral vision because it's not, you know, try looking at something and then reading in your peripheral vision, particularly if you're over 50, right? It's a, sort of a challenge. So we look at things, and everything else gets a little bit, I won't say fuzzy because you can still kind of see it clearly, but you can't look at it directly. So if I look from the, um, the, the dresser here, and I look at a chair, and I look at a mirror, and I look... Oh, hi, handsome. And then I look at uh, the door. Each one of these things, when I focus on that, I'm losing the other things, right? So if I go from the dresser where I can kind of see the 16, but I can't really hold them all in my head, 16 knobs. If I go and look at the door, I can barely see the knobs at all. They're in my peripheral vision. Let me try the other eye, which is better. Nope, still can't really see the knobs. If I look at the knobs directly, I can look at one directly and see the ones right around it. I can look at one directly and kind of get the other ones on the periphery. But if I look over at the door... I can barely see, even with my good eye, I can barely see the knobs, right? So we lose track of stuff all the time. If I'm doing a walk in the woods, I'm looking at a tree. Even if I look at that tree directly, I'm not looking at the whole tree. I'm looking at one point in the trunk or one leaf or one point on the branch, and I see that, and I see, you know, it's a dissolving cone of of specificity and, and focus. It all just fades away, washes away. And I'm, even if I could see the whole tree, I'm not, like, somehow conceive of the whole tree and process it in my brain, I'm not seeing the other side of the tree. I'm not seeing the tree from a different angle. I'm not seeing the inside of the tree. I'm not seeing the roots of the tree. I'm not, like, seeing the veins inside of, of the leaves. Or I'm not seeing under the bark where all the termites are or whatever. Like, 
I can only see a tiny bit of anything I'm looking at. I'm looking at the dresser. I can't even honestly remember what's in those drawers because <laughs> I'm a husband. Oh, yeah. I can't even find the milk when it's staring at me in the fridge, right? So I, we can process in terms of like in our minds through the senses, we can process very, very little of what is. That doesn't mean the senses are invalid, doesn't mean they're subjective or anything like that. I mean, there are uh, 16 knobs and there are two rows of four drawers, right? So you've got eight drawers, 16 knobs, one dresser. I get that's totally accurate, no problem with that. But I'm not thinking about my bowels. I'm not thinking about my little toe. Oh, now I am. I'm not thinking about my family downstairs. I'm, I'm focusing on getting these ideas across to you. So the point of all of this, let me tell you what the point of all this is. Think of a forest, okay? So you can picture a forest, right? So aggregation of trees, maybe some shrubbery, some leaves on the ground, uh, some animals, and, and so on, right? But you see, you have the concept of forest because you can't ever directly process the reality of the forest, right? Think of a crowd of people. You can think of maybe a crowd of a thousand people in a, in a square in the middle of a city or something or protesting or cheering something. So you've got the concept of crowd, but you can't see in your mind's eye or even in reality, you can't see everyone all at once. You can look at one person and you see in the periphery vision a couple of other people around them, you, but you can't, you can't get a thousand people in your minds all at once. Hell, I can't even get 16 knobs in my mind all at once. I'm not alone in this. This, this is you, this is everyone. So we've got a concept called crowd to describe something we can't process. We've got a concept called forest, something we can't process. Think of a concept called country. Right, USA, you've got a landmass, you've got halfy halfy Puerto Rico, you've got Hawaii, you've got, which is thousands of miles away in the middle of the ocean, you've got Alaska, which is separated by Canada, and you've got hundreds of millions of people, and you can't process America. You've got a word for it. You've got a concept called America, but you can't process it. So we've got these concepts for things we can't process. So when you say, well, I can conceive of an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful being, I would argue you really can't. You can't even, you have, you've got a concept or a label for it. But even if you were to say a non-contradictory thing which can be empirically verified like a forest or a crowd, you can't process those things within your own mind. You have a label for things you can't process. That's what concepts are. They're labels for things we can't process. Right, so when I was a little kid, a toddler, I had a ball. Now, it wasn't a ball, it was the ball. It was just the only ball that I had, the only ball that I knew. It's a lovely little red and blue thing. I used to love rolling it around and watching the blur, right, in the purple. So that was a thing. I didn't have a concept called ball. I just had my ball. And it's funny because I now, still even now, we'll play a game uh, with my daughter in a pool called My Ball, where we have this little ball and we both try and get it and get the other, keep the other person from getting it. It's a lot of fun. So I, I just had a ball, right? You look at your mom and dad when you're very little, you're a toddler, baby toddler. It's mom and dad. It's not in the category parents. It's not in the category mothers. It's not in the category fathers. It's your mom and your dad because you can process them directly. That's why animals can process sense data, but they don't have concepts usually as a whole. They certainly don't have language to describe those concepts. So a concept is there for something you can't process. 
You can't process a forest, neither can I. You can't process a crowd, neither can I. So this idea, well, we can, we can conceive of it, therefore it could exist. My argument is we can't conceive of it. We can't conceive of eternity. We can't conceive of all-knowing. To imagine knowing every single thing about every atom in the universe? We can't see three atoms deep into a layer of paint. When you think, you look at the concept house. Think of the concept house. Do you think of everything that's in the walls? Do you think of the plumbing? Do you think of the electrical? Do you think of the basement? Do you think of the beams? Do you think of the attic? Do you think of the, you probably don't even know the various layers that go into your roof. I know I don't. So we've got this word called house. Yes, it references something that's very real, and we can go and examine each little part of it, but we can't conceive of the house. In fact, we have the word for things we can't conceive of. Concepts are there to give us labels and allow us to reference things we can't conceive of. I can conceive of my mother and my father, but I can't conceive of all the mothers and fathers in the world. Now, I have a category in my mind called parents and mothers and fathers, but I can't conceive of the inhabitants. I have a category for something I can't conceive of. In other words, I can't hold it in my mind. I mean, just think of the universe. I mean, we've all had these things, you know, oh, the sun's going to end in five billion years and years when you're a kid. If you're a kid with brains, you're like, oh, my God, that doesn't that make everything worthless? Like, you can't conceive of five billion years. I mean, if you just take $51 bills, spread them out on the ground, $51 bills, you can't hold 50 in your mind. Because when you start looking at the top, left ones, the bottom right ones fuzz out. and, and right, you, you can't hold even 50. You can't hold a million. You can't hold a billion. You can't hold a trillion. Any of that stuff, you can't hold it in your mind. A hundred billion galaxies, each of which has a hundred billion stars. You can't possibly conceive of any of that. Now, we have words to describe it. We can say a hundred billion universes, each of which, sorry, a hundred billion galaxies, each of which has a hundred billion stars. But we can't conceive of these things. So concepts... To a large degree, maybe exclusively, I don't know, I'm still working on this. But concepts are there to describe things we can't conceive of. So the idea that we can conceive of an all-knowing, all-perfect, all-powerful, omniscient being, we can't conceive of that. We can't conceive of eternity. We can't conceive of infinity. Now we have words so that we can reference things that we can't conceive of. But that's really where concepts are ways of describing things we can't conceive of. We can't put in our minds. We can't process in any simultaneous kind of way. So that is, I think, uh, one of the ways that we can push back on this. Can we really conceive of God? Ineffable, unknowable, the opposite. And this is not a proof for or against the existence of God. This is simply with reference to the ontological argument. Saying, well, if we can conceive of it, if we can conceive of a perfect being, it must exist because existence would be part of that perfection. Well, so it doesn't follow. First of all, there's no reason why it would only be limited to God. And secondly, the fact that we can conceive of something does not prove that it exists. And saying, well, we can conceive of a perfect thing, everything which is more perfect must exist. Can we even conceive of perfection? I don't know that we can conceive of perfection. Because everything is marred. Everything in the universe that is particularly that is biological is marred. What is a perfect person? What is, what is perfect health? Nobody even knows what that means. 
there's always some part of us that's ailing. There's always some part of us that has some kind of tiny, minus, minuscule problem. What does it mean? Can we conceive of perfection? I don't know that we can. Because some concepts are simply the opposite of what we can conceive. Infinity is the opposite of the small number of things that we can conceive of. Eternity is, you know, we can conceive of 10 minutes. We can conceive of, well, even 10 minutes is tough because it's a whole bunch of seconds. We can certainly conceive of up to nine seconds, he said on his honeymoon. But we've got a, a, phrase, a word called eternity to signify that which we cannot conceive of. Now, this doesn't mean the concepts are subjective or invalid or anything like that, but the idea that we can conceive and put within our limited mortal ADHD, hyper-focused, peripheral vision, blurry minds, that we can put eternity, omniscience, and perfectly good into our minds and genuinely conceive of it rather than having words for things that we can't put in our brains but we still need to deal with. I mean, you will, have a, a, you will buy a house for $300,000. You can't conceive of 300000 guarantee. You can't close your eyes and get 300,000 little lines of dots and have them all perfectly aware in your consciousness and none of them fuzzing out or getting blurry. You can't look at $300,001 bills spread across a football field and put them all in your brain at the same time. They're all going to blur out at the edges and whatever it is. So, but, but you still have to be able to buy a house for 300000 So we've got these labels, numbers and, and other terms, uh, shapes, and, and we, we've got that, right? Make me a round cake. Okay, well, it's, is there a perfectly round cake? No, there is not. There's no such thing as a perfectly round cake. It's round enough that, you know, if they make you a square cake, you say, no, I wanted a round cake. So the concepts are there to describe things we can't process, and that's why they're so incredibly useful, because it extends and expands what we can communicate and manipulate. No engineer can process all the atoms that go into making up his bridge or his space shuttle. Now, the other question is, can we conceive of things that are self-contradictory? So if I say, well, I can conceive of a perfect square circle. Ah, but you see, for a square circle to be perfect, it must exist in the world. It must have a tangible existence. It must exist. Even if we say not in the world, it must exist, right? So I've got a, a self-contradictory concept, a square circle. It's a perfect square circle. And because it's a perfect square circle and I can conceive of it, it must exist somewhere. But can we really conceive of a square circle existing? Well, we can't. And don't give me squares with rounded edges. That's not the same thing. And don't give me cylinders and cubes and all this kind of nonsense. No, square circles are self-contradictory entities. It's a square or it's a circle. It can't be both. That's just law of identity, right? Either or. It can't be both. Or... I can conceive of a creature. I can I can create the description of a creature that is both an elephant and an egret, which is a, a thin white bird, I think, in Florida and places, right? I can conceive of an animal, or I can describe the concept of an animal that is both an elephant and an egret at the same time, a mammal and a bird with wings, without wings, with trunk, without trunk, large, small. I can conceive of the elephagret or the... <laughs> The egrophant, the elephant and the egret, both at the same time, even though that's contradictory properties, I can conceive of that perfect combination. Therefore, it must exist somewhere. Well, can I conceive of something that is both an elephant and an egret at the same time? Can I conceive of something that is both a circle and a square at the same time? 
I can have language to describe it. I can say a square circle. Can I conceive of it? No, because it's a contradictory entity. So for the ontological proof to work, it would have to be the case that God would have no self-contradictory properties based upon what we know in reality. Right? Now, again, one of the typical ones is all-knowing and all-powerful. Right? If God is all-powerful, he can change what I'm going to do tomorrow. If God is all-knowing, then he knows what I'm going to do tomorrow. But if he knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, because he's perfectly knowledgeable, and right, if he's all-knowing, then he knows what I'm going to do tomorrow. If he's all-powerful, he can change what I'm going to do tomorrow. But if he can change it, he can't be certain he knows it. If he's certain he knows it, he can't change it. So all-powerful and all-knowing are contradictory characteristics. right? God is all-powerful, but God is all-good. All-good means he can't do evil. But if he can't do evil, he's not all-powerful. He's on a train track called virtue. And again, we could debate these things, and of course, the typical argument and a response to that, which we'll get to, is, well, no, God is outside of time. So for God, all moments are one, and there's no, knowing what you can do tomorrow, changing, there is no tomorrow for God, he's outside of time. In the same way that a computer programmer isn't inside the computer game. And the computer programmer can create rules within the game that don't apply to himself. In the computer game, you might have the ability, like in Skyrim, to throw a fireball from your hand. But the programmer doesn't have the ability to do that. He's just putting that within the game. He's outside the game. So, and, and people experience the game in a linear fashion, but the programmer knows the beginning, the middle, and the end because it's all programmed in. So I, I get, but all you're doing then is removing causality, right? So if you're saying, well, a square circle can't exist, and you're saying, oh, no, no, square circles are outside of geometry. They're outside of logic. Well, all you're doing is saying, well, we have a standard for that which exists, and we're just going to keep removing those standards until you give up and say this thing could exist. But since existence is predicated on logical consistency and material evidence, tangible evidence, right? I mean, that's the way that science works, and science is our most successful discipline, so we don't want to toss it out willy-nilly. Science says, if you propose the existence of something, it can't be self-contradictory. It can't be a square circle. It can't be an egret and an elephant at the same time. And if it's not self-contradictory, it has the potential to exist, but you have to also have some empirical or material evidence that it does exist. So you can, if you say existence is reason plus evidence, reason being it's a rational, not self-contradictory entity, existence is reason plus evidence. And you say, no, 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 my definition of existence is, does not require reason and evidence. Well, then you have two contradictory standards of existence, one which requires reason and evidence, and one which does not require reason and evidence. But existence can't have two opposite standards. Right? Existence can't have two opposite standards, right? I mean, if you have two people both accused of, of killing someone, and one, then they both have perfect alibis. They were um, in the International Space Station when the murder occurred. Can you say to one person, yeah, well, you can't be in two places at the same time, therefore that's perfectly valid, you didn't do the killing, and say to the other, his fellow astronaut, and the killing was on Earth, and says, well, you were also in the International Space Station, but you can be in two places at the same time, therefore we're going to try you. But that's having two standards for the same situation. But you can't just make these things up. Otherwise, you could just make up anything. You can literally make up anything, and anything could be true, and this is sort of the postmodern thing that, that's kind of infecting us in the modern world. So if you say, well, the, 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 what's necessary but not sufficient for existence is rational consistency, and what is proof of existence is empirical evidence, then saying, I claim existence 
in opposition to these standards. It can be self-contradictory and no material proof is required. Then you're using the word existence to mean two completely opposite things. Rational consistency, empirical verification, right? That's existence. But then you hijack that word and you say existence is now needs no rational consistency and no empirical evidence. But you can't use the same word. You can't use the same word with opposite standards. It's like saying, towards that mountain is north. Towards that mountain is north. And someone says, go south. And you start walking towards that mountain. And you say, well, no, no, you said that mountain is north. I'm like, yeah, but this mountain is also south. I'm like, you can't do that. doesn't work in reality. doesn't work in logic. So you can create another world, another word called existence. You can create another word. But you can't use the word existence when it refers to logical consistency and empirical evidence. That's what existence means. That's what existence means. Right? That's how you walk through a doorway. Because you've got a wall, you've got an open door, the door doesn't exist where you're walking through, therefore you can walk through it. But we all know existence versus non-existence. Even this audio is coming into your ears through existence and non-existence, the presence or absence of, of sound waves. Existence and non-existence is foundational to absolutely everything. There are pauses between my sentence. There's the presence of sound and the absence of sound, unless you have tinnitus, in which case, God help you, it's tough, right? So you can't use the word existence to mean logical consistency, empirical evidence, and then say, I have another standard called existence, which is in complete rejection of those two things. You need a different word. You can't have a word for a thing in its opposite. You cannot have north that means south as well. You cannot have a word and then hijack that word in service of your preferences and say that I'm going to use the word existence in defiance of reason and evidence, in the absence of reason and evidence. That is to make language meaningless. And with regards to the existence or non-existence of God, does God exist or not? First word to define is existence. And certainly empiricism and and science and reason and our daily existence and how we live all requires logical consistency and empirical evidence. So you can use another word, but you can't use that word because then you have a word that means itself and its opposite without acknowledgement. And that's not right. It's like social contract. A contract is something you voluntarily sign. But to say social contract means that you're subjugated to the state. No, 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 no. The word contract can't be used for it. And we'll explore this as we go forward in philosophy, how often people will take a word, hijack it for the opposite meaning, and try and pass it off uh, that way. So I hope that this helps. I really do appreciate you listening and being engaged in these conversations. This is the most fascinating stuff for me at the moment, and I love that you guys are interested, and thank you so much. And, of course, if you find this helpful, and I know that you do, if you find this helpful, please help me out. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Lots of love. Take care. Bye.